Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome back. This is episode 10 of Discovering the Old Testament, and I want to take a moment to thank all of our listeners for your expressions of interest and support. Uh, Your response has been very gratifying. In this installment, we will talk about Jacob and Esau, who were both sons of Isaac and Rebekah. The Old Testament has a number of families in its story. Most of them are somewhat dysfunctional, which is part of what makes them so interesting. The observant reader will notice that the Old Testament can be remarkably unsparing in how it portrays some of its main characters. Not that the art of the spin doctor is completely absent, but they make it clear that the people who founded the Israelite nation were not exactly angels. We will also see a pattern of maneuvering and deception that goes outside what we might expect from, quote, normal families. These characters do not always follow the rules of their society or play nice with each other. Rebecca and Jacob are two such people, and we will meet others. Let's pick up the story in Genesis 25, when Rebecca is pregnant with twins who are struggling with each other even in her womb. Rebecca is concerned by this, so she seeks an answer from God about what is happening. What comes back is couched as a classic ancient Near Eastern oracle. Verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. The next verse has the feel of an ancient birth omen. Verse 24, When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterwards his brother came out, with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. Birth omens were an important form of divination in the ancient Near East. In Mesopotamia in particular, we have hundreds of them, an entire literature dedicated to predicting the future based on unusual or monstrous births. A notable birth by a human or an animal could portend the future of a person, a family, or even an entire nation. In this case, it was all of the above. There's a lot going on here. First, the disposition of the twins provided a basis for their names. Esau was hairy, uh, which is what his name refers to, but he is also described as red. This becomes important later. The etymology that connects the name Jacob to the child's grip on his brother's heel is what linguists call a folk etymology. It is a story about the name's origin that is meant to make a point, but isn't supported by the language. What is the point of the story? Another story follows, the one in which Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of lentil stew. The story of the birth of the children and the birthright story both serve to explain a long-running political conflict. Jacob is to become the progenitor of the Israelite tribes, but Esau is the father of the Edomites. The word Edom is very close to the Hebrew word for red, Adom. 
These two stories depend on the reader understanding this in order to catch the puns and wordplay used to explain the Israelite view of the Edomites. Let's just say that the Edomites and the Israelites had a love-hate relationship only without the love. The two peoples, though both descendants of Abraham, were ever at odds with each other. Even in the time of the return from exile in Babylon, the book of Isaiah is still sticking it to the Edomites. So in this chapter, and later in chapter 27, the political rhetoric is to make Esau, the progenitor of the Edomites, into something of a dolt. Although he is good with a bow and can bring home tasty wild game, such as his father enjoys, he comes across as brutish, unsubtle, and with a very short planning horizon. That said, Jacob is a sharp dealer. His forte is deception, and, in all honesty, he cheats Esau out of his birthright. One day, Esau comes back from the field famished, and Jacob is cooking a pot of red, there's that word again, lentil stew. Esau's request uses a word different from the usual Hebrew word for eat. It's more like devour. He's not even sure what kind of soup it is. He just wants some of, quote, that red stew, close quote, and wants it so badly that Jacob persuades him to give up his privileges as Isaac's first son, which Esau confirms by an oath in exchange for lunch. Now, nowhere in this narrative do we hear anything to indicate that Isaac even knew about this little deal. But Rebekah seems to have known, because she later aided Jacob in tricking Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing that Esau had renounced. Rebekah and Jacob both take advantage of the fact that Isaac is now blind, and has just sent Esau out to bag one more meal of savory game, and will then confer his blessing before he dies. The ruse is almost comical. Jacob wears Esau's clothing, and puts goat skins on the backs of his hands and the nape of his neck so that he feels like Esau. But Isaac buys it. But what was this blessing, anyway? Blessing is a big deal in Genesis. Of the roughly 400 occurrences of the Hebrew verb to bless, 88 of them appear in Genesis. As we noted previously, the point of blessing is to invoke the power of increase and prosperity, primarily in the area of fertility. This is not the same as having direct control over fertility. That power is God's inviolate province. The blessing of a father on his children was a special instance. From what we see in the text, a particular blessing could be given only once, and it could not be undone or withdrawn. It was considered an influence on the future destiny of the recipient and his descendants. Once given, it was given. It was kind of like an inheritance. Apparently, there was only so much blessing that could be given, and one son would get the lion's share of it. Remember, Genesis is about who survives and why. So gaining access to the power inherent in the patriarch's blessing would be considered a critical advantage. That said, even though Esau did get the short end of it, he managed to father a considerable progeny eventually. He demanded, begged for, a blessing from Isaac, which Isaac, when Isaac had none left to give. But he did bless Esau that he would live. Life would not be easy, but he and his descendants would live and eventually break free of their servitude.
Rebecca's role in the plot to usurp Esau is not just a product of sentiment. Isaac's blessing is one of the last things he would do before he dies. She needs to secure her own future, which means that her favored son must be the one with the advantage. Another detail. When Rebecca tells Jacob of her plan to help him steal Esau's blessing, Jacob objects because if Isaac gets wise, he could curse Jacob instead of blessing him. We don't hear much about fathers cursing their children. Noah's curse of his son Ham is the best-known example. But it would have had the opposite effect of the blessing. Rebecca shows some iron nerves by insisting that they go through with it, even if it means being cursed by her husband. For his part, Jacob is fine with the plan in principle. He's just not entirely convinced it's going to work. In the end, Jacob secures the blessing, but Esau decides to kill Jacob when the mourning period for Isaac is passed. That usually lasted seven days. Jacob's blessing is meaningless in the face of his brother's hate, and so he has to leave. Rebecca sends him away with the same decisiveness she used to gain a blessing for him, but it is not for a little while, as she hopes. Jacob will be gone for twenty years, and he will never see Rebecca again. We've seen Jacob as a recipient of his father's blessing, and we will soon see him as the heir of the covenant of Abraham. We've also seen him as a schemer and a deceiver, even if his mother put him up to some of it. As with Abraham and Abimelech, Jacob does not exactly come off as squeaky clean according to our standards, but that's kind of the important point. He lived in his own time, with its own standards of behavior. This is not to justify his actions, but a warning to beware of trying to shoehorn the patriarchs into preconceived notions of what we think is proper. The Old Testament makes clear that just because someone is doing what they think best, or is seeking to do God's will, necessity can make for some unsavory situations. Isaac makes one request of Jacob before he leaves, and that is not to take a Canaanite wife. We've discussed the role women played in pastoral nomad societies as a means to political power. But in this case, there is also the need to maintain sociological and religious continuity, which is just as important to the authors of Genesis. So, Jacob goes to the land of Laban, his uncle. On the way there, something extraordinary happens. Jacob stops to spend the night at a nondescript campsite, and during the night experiences a theophany the literal Jacob's Ladder vision, in which Adonai himself appears to Jacob and promises to give the land to him and his descendants. Jacob, the next morning, takes a vow that if God protects him, Jacob will worship him exclusively and dedicate a tenth of all he has to him. Jacob eventually ends up at a well where he meets Rachel, one of the two daughters of Laban. He waters the sheep under her care, the comparison with Rebekah watering the camels of Abraham's servant immediately comes to mind, as it should. Laban welcomes Jacob into his household, 
where he meets the older daughter, Leah. Jacob wants to marry Rachel, and there is nothing to prevent that as such. Among Arab nations, cousins were actually privileged suitors. A wife is often referred to even today as, quote, the daughter of my uncle, close quote, whether she actually is or not. Jacob has nothing with which to pay the mohar, or bride price, so he offers his services instead. He also does not have the backing of his father's house close at hand, so he is rather at Laban's mercy. Tricky Jacob may be, but in Laban he meets a worthy rival in duplicity. The deal is struck. Jacob works for seven years, and he can have Rachel. Of course, we all know the story. Laban throws one hell of a feast, leads Jacob to the marriage tent, and the next morning he wakes up next to Leah. The wily Laban seems utterly unmoved by Jacob's furious protests. He hides behind protocol, and Jacob can do nothing. He has no basis of power or leverage to get his way. This time, tradition has its way, and Laban is holding all the cards. He generously offers to let Jacob have Rachel, but it will cost another seven years. Jacob agrees. Laban has Jacob right where he wants him. Laban gets a competent worker and profits from his labor, but there is more damage done than to Jacob's immediate interests. Jacob now has a wife he did not want. Laban's crude intervention between the love of two people will have lasting consequences. The conflict born of this rivalry and ensuing conflict will simmer and occasionally boil up for many years to come. Although Rachel was Jacob's favorite, the text says that God prevented her from bearing children. Leah had no such problem, but as she named each of her children in Genesis 29, her reasoning for each name is tied to her sense of rejection by Jacob and his lack of genuine affection for her. Rachel counters by doing as Sarah did long before her. She gives her handmaid Bilhah to Jacob as a concubine, with the understanding that any children born to her would be considered Rachel's. This is why, when Bilhah's children are born, Rachel is the one who names them, not Bilhah. Bilhah succeeds in bearing sons. But, as we saw before, such a child does not guarantee the security of the legal mother. Leah raises the stakes still higher by offering Jacob her own handmaid, Zilpha, and she also bears sons. There is an interesting episode in chapter 29 in which Leah's son, Reuben, brings home some mandrakes that he found out in the field. Mandrakes have a long history in folklore and herbology as both an aphrodisiac and a fertility drug, so they would be highly valued in this kind of society. Rachel makes a bargain with Leah. She gets to sleep with Jacob an extra night, and Rachel gets some of the mandrakes. Leah gets pregnant once again as a result, but so does Rachel shortly thereafter. The text specifically says that God remembered Rachel. He heard her and opened her womb, and she became pregnant. This seems to be an editorial note that might seek to downplay the role of the mandrakes in Rachel's conception. But there is a layer of text here that seems to understand that this, nevertheless, played an important role in Rachel's eventual motherhood. After Leah herself has had six sons and one daughter, 
Rachel is finally able to conceive and bears a son, Joseph. Now some of you are probably wondering what happens in matters of inheritance when you have multiple wives and even more potential heirs. Typically, in situations like this, the heir would be Joseph because he is the firstborn son of the favored wife. Obviously, there is enormous potential for all sorts of infighting and intrigue under this system. Rachel's second child also ends her life. She dies in childbirth, but not before she names the child Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. Jacob intervenes. Recall that names were believed to be predictive, and such a name would be a terrible burden. Jacob renames him Ben-Yamin, or son of the right hand, which is far more auspicious. This part of the patriarchal narrative gives us some insight into the place of women in this society. It was the women who, as Rebecca did, worked to preserve the interests of their children even in the face of prevailing tradition and the interests of the community. As we see in the family life of Jacob, the rivalries and struggles of the women are just as important as those of the men. Meanwhile, the twelve sons of Jacob and his wives are the future progenitors of the twelve tribes of Israel. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S-Press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.